to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Jim Naughton. Jim is an associate professor in the accounting area at the Darden School of Business, and his research examines how financial, legal, and regulatory institutions shape both financial disclosure and economic choices. We recently connected with Jim as part of our ongoing faculty spotlight series, a series we call Office Hours, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, Here's my interview with Jim Norton. Jim, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, Jim, let's start with a, a pretty easy softball first question here. Uh, tell us more about you. Who are you? Who am I? Well, obviously, an accounting professor now, uh, certainly not something I expected to be uh, when I was younger. Um, I, I kind of, you know, meandered through life a little bit and, and sort of realized my interest as I as I grew up. I mean, one of the jokes, I'm originally from Ireland. Uh so I've been in the U.S. quite a while now. When I first came to the U.S., I, I played basketball. That was my, <laughs> my interest like then. But academically, I always thought I wanted to to do something in the in the sciences. I was good at math, um, and uh, and I thought at one point maybe to be an astronaut. Realized I was too tall. You can't actually be my height and be an astronaut. So that sort of eliminated itself. But um, you know, when I went through college, I ended up being a, an actuary uh, who you know works at math uh, all the time. And it was through that job I got exposed to a lot of accounting type issues, and it really just piqued my interest. You know, I, I I never sort of expected that to happen, but but that's what happened, and that sort of led me to to go to graduate school, um, and, and sort of led me to to where I am today. So you mentioned you got exposed to accounting uh, through uh, through your work. Um, what was interesting to you about accounting? Oh, sure, you, you know. I think accounting is one of these things where, where at least my sort of bias when I was in my, you know, my early to, to mid twenties, when I didn't know a lot about accounting was, oh, it's just a bunch of rules. You know, you just, here's a rule. Uh, if A, then B, you just kind of follow the rules. And, um, you know, I was working in a consulting position where um, at the time uh, there was a lot of um, M&A activity where um, there was a drive to sort of, increase manufacturing in the US. And so a lot of these older manufacturing companies were being acquired by by larger publicly traded companies. And as part of that, me and and, and my colleagues were, were hired to go in and evaluate all the things that were going on at these companies, both from an accounting standpoint and from a human capital standpoint. And, and what I realized through those assignments was just how much discretion there was in how things were managed from an accounting standpoint and how things were priced you know, how the private equity companies managed the portfolio companies, how they decided what was important to track, um, how they reported their performance. It, it turned out that there was a tremendous amount of, you know, careful analysis where there really was a lot of decisions that could be made um, and decisions that, you know, right or wrong, they were, you know, are you providing information that's more transparent, more useful? Um, and it really just, you know, as the more I did work in that area, the more interested I became. Um, you know, there was a few patterns, but there was a lot of things that seemed quite ad hoc. Um, and it was just really fascinating to me. Um, and so after, you know, working in consulting for it was about nine years, um, that's when I started graduate school and uh, I made the decision to, to be an academic. So for folks who spend a little time with your faculty profile page, they likely notice that you have a JD and a PhD. So yeah. what attracted you to a law degree? 
Um, yeah, so so the way the you know the way I think about my research and the way I think about the world is um, there's guidelines, right? So when you look at accounting, there's a lot of guidelines on, on how they want you to do things, um, and when you look at sort of how firms are regulated, there's also a lot of legal rules, um, often suggestions, often sort of you know this is how things should run. And and what I experienced when I was working is those rules often interacted with each other. Um, and so what I was really interested in was was not things that were companies were doing sort of routinely at that time, but more, you know, when you think about things like human capital, um, there's a lot of legal rules in terms of like how you manage your workforce, you know, how you can provide pension obligations or, you know, and, and these sort of things. There, there's rules that are out there and there's sort of accounting guidelines for how you should report those, those items, um, but both were incomplete. Uh, and so what I was thinking of at the time was, you know, I'd really like to be able to look at a company and understand its social impact, you know, its contract with its workers. You know, if I look at a company and I can, you know, I can look at earnings, I can look at sales and, and those are pretty easy to measure. But ultimately what I really care about is what's going to happen in the future. And And through my work, I always felt that one of the biggest drivers of that was understanding how employees felt, how motivated they were. Um, what the contract between them and the company looked like. Um, and so what I was interested in was sort of thinking about how those things are managed. And, you know, at the time, um, those are managed in part through through legal requirements and in part through accounting, um, but obviously incomplete in both. And so that's sort of where I started, um, where I felt, okay, I really need a little bit of expertise in all these things if I wanna, if I wanna go down this road. So does that inform what you ultimately decide to look at as, as you do your PhD um, in your dis dissertation topic? Yeah, I mean, things always vary. Uh, so so I will say that um, academia is a mix of sort of what motivates us and then what we can realistically do. Um, so, so a lot of times what you really want, uh, there isn't necessarily the data to study that. And so what you do is you chip away over time. Uh, so... Uh, you, you sort of have the the main motivation, which I still have, which is sort of understanding, you know, the how you know the social performance of a company. That's still sort of my main motivation, but I chip away at it in different ways depending on on what kind of data I can get. Uh, and a lot of it falls into so in, in accounting we have different areas of research, uh, and mine falls into what's called disclosure regulation. Um, so, you know, there's some mandatory disclosures, things you have to provide, and then there's a lot of things that are voluntary. Um, and voluntary is sort of uh, an interesting area in the sense that there are guidelines that turn what might be voluntary into mandatory because it's material. Uh, and there's guidelines that, um, you know, if things are hard to measure, maybe you can't disclose them at all. And so there's a lot of sort of nuance in how that information gets communicated. Uh, and so a lot of what I do is still chipping away uh, in that area. Uh, I've got uh, a long way to go, <laughs> long way to go still. So uh, as part of your journey to academia, obviously teaching is part of this too, in the classroom with students. Uh, what attracted you uh, to teaching? To teaching? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that um, uh, I, I, I think in my background, you know, when you study engineering or math, a lot of the teaching is very... Um, uh, unidirectional. You know, you have a you have a professor who kind of stands at the front of the room and gives you the information, 
uh, and then you take down that information and and that sort of is is how things sort of traditionally worked um and, and when i went to to graduate school i i will sort of be the first to admit that my initial thoughts at that time were primarily along the research front um and i wasn't really you know i, I knew i enjoyed um presenting you know when i worked in consulting obviously i presented a lot to boards and to to investor groups and so i kind of you know i knew i enjoyed that i knew i understand the challenge of trying to explain complex transactions um to to, to interested parties but what was really eye-opening to me when i was a graduate student and just obviously in terms of you know i did my my my, my doctoral degree at harvard uh where the you know the emphasis is on case teaching um and so my uh my second the end, end of my first year and then into my second year um i began sort of working closely with a faculty in the finance department uh teaching review sessions and teaching um you know finance material using the the case method and it was something that um i just fell in love with it was just so exhilarating to, to sort of not be the one providing the information but to actually just be sitting back and listening to the students and, and just sort of guiding the students in their conversations with each other. Um, and that to me was something that really, um, you know, lit a passion for me for being in, in the classroom. And, and ultimately, you know, obviously I was at Kellogg for about seven years there um, both before I came to Darden. But one of the, the big drivers to come to Darden is the emphasis on case, case teaching. You know, once you um, once you commit to case teaching, it really is the best way to to manage a classroom, and it's by far the most um, efficient way of learning material and really internalizing it. Um, and so that's something that you know I, I sort of didn't expect, quite honestly, when I when I started my my graduate school. But once I once I experienced it, it was it was clear to me at that point that this is really what I wanted to uh, to, to be from a teaching standpoint. I want to unpack something that you just shared uh, there. So uh, best way to manage the classroom, most efficient way to learn material, case method. Why Why do you feel that way? Oh, you know, so one of the things that I, and if we go by this again as a graduate student, when I would talk to students about sort of what they learned in class, um, you know, years later. So like I would, you know, I mean, I was, so I was doing some of this, you know, sort of the end of my first year into my second year. And then even a couple of years later, I remember bumping into a group of students at a, at a road race in Boston. <laughs> and uh, they were like, oh, you know, we loved you for, for finite, whatever. And, the, and they would say, I still remember. And they would still remember the takeaway um, in, in very sort of clear ways. And um, and, and so, and, and the reason, you know, I, I think a lot of us have sort of different intuition for why that happens. Um, Mine has always been that if I tell you the answer, um, you're sort of like, oh, yeah, I knew that. That was the answer. I, I kind of knew that. Um, but with the case method, we we don't tell you the answer. Or sometimes there isn't even really an answer. But what you what you do in the classroom is you try to figure out what the answer is. And so students are going back and forth trying to figure out how something should work. Um, and in accounting, that's especially interesting because you have your intuition uh, you know, so your economic intuition for how things should work, but then you have this overlay of what the regulators want. Um, and so you have sort of these layered ways of, of sort of figuring out how it should work from, you know, an economic intuition standpoint, but then also how it should work from a regulatory standpoint and why. And once you go through all of those thoughts and, and trying to figure it out, 
you just remember it. Um, and when you're faced with similar, you know, because in, in accounting, there's a lot of things that work very similarly. Um, and I think that once you sort of get comfortable with the process of figuring out how things should work, that's really the learning. Um, so, you know, if I told you the rule for something, it would be, you know, I think just far less effective um, in the long run. So you may remember it that week, you may remember for a test three weeks later, but when you get out of the, the MBA program and three years later, you're in a boardroom and something comes up, you won't have that as background. But my experience with, you know, my early experience, um, you know, basically, you know, suggest that's, you know, that's how you remember things. It, it, it's the figuring it out. And I will say as a parent, that's why I torture my kids. I make them figure everything out. Uh, so, so it works in every way, in my opinion, that's, that's just good way of doing things. You, you t teach accounting in the, in the core curriculum and, uh, with the course is called accounting for managers. And I will say, uh, talking with prospective students, if there's a course or two that they're nervous about coming into business school, I think accounting would be one of those courses. Um, it, it, how would you describe the accounting course that students encounter here, here at Darden? Yeah, so so the accounting here is very different um, from what you would do at sort of um, it, it, what we'll call for, for students that have sort of taken a an introductory accounting class online or or in an undergraduate environment. Um, those are very what we call rules based lectures. They just tell you, oh, if it's this transaction, this is how you record it, um, and and that is not the intent of what we do at Darden. Uh, so what we do at Darden is uh, we're trying to teach you how to make decisions and to use accounting information to help you support your decision or to help guide your decision. Um, and so that's very different. So, you know, if you go back to what I used to work on um, in M&A, you know, one of the things that that often happens in, in those types of transactions is you acquire assets. Some of them you can value, some of them you can't. Uh, sometimes these transactions work, sometimes they don't. And sort of years later, sometimes you have to update your accounting because something you acquired just didn't turn out to be that valuable. Um, and and sort of how do you decide when to do that? So so it turns out there's a lot of leeway in, in when you when you do that. And then how much should you do? Um, should you do all of it up front? Should you do it over time? You know, what are your choices as a, as a manager? Um, and a lot of what we look at is is sort of thinking through those problems. Um, and one of the cases we use, we happen to have, you know, a change in the CEO. And, and what you see is the fact that you have a new CEO really changes the accounting. And, and, you know, again, if you go back to me, you know, more than 20 years ago when I was a young guy, not really thinking about accounting, I would not have expected that, oh, just because you have a different CEO, you get different accounting results. But it turns out there's a lot of incentives at play. Uh, and there's a lot of discretion in the system. And so helping, you know, the in a very simple terms, nobody's doing anything right or wrong. It's just, you know, my strategy is A, the new, the old CEO strategy was B. And I'm just building my accounting system to support A, or I had previously built it to support B. Um, and so you just sort of see these things kind of kind of work their way through. Um, and so really the the value of what we're trying to provide is, you know, for, for people that are going to be managing um, entities, it's really the way they think about accounting. Um, so accounting is uh, unavoidable. There's, you know, you, you can, as a, as a young uh, undergraduate um, student going out for your first job for the first couple of years, you can avoid knowing accounting. 
Um, but there's there's nobody who's risen to um, a director or VP level that that sort of doesn't have to deal with accounting uh, in their in their everyday work. Um, but the way in which they deal with it is not oh if it this is how you enter transactions or this is how you make a cash flow statement. It's well what are the incentives and what are my choices and how do I think about what it is that I want to communicate to investors. Um, and that's really the perspective that we take in in the class. So, so what I find, you know, you know, if we look at the the, the couple of years that, um, you know, the last couple of years of of, of teaching here, um, you know, I, I would say the number one uh, feedback that I get is this class was so much better than I thought it was going to be. So exactly on lines with, you know, you come in thinking, oh my god, accounting, it's going to be torture. Um, but you know, it turns out to be a little mix of strategy and, and, and leadership, and it's really about decision making. And that just honestly, that's what you need as an MBA student. You're, you're not going to work in these entry level roles for long. Uh, and what you really need is the decision making. One of the things that you mentioned is sort of uh, having students sort of think about their intuition and then also think about sort of the accounting rules. I've always been struck having sat through an occasional accounting course by how much discussion there is around sort of intuition. Like, how do you, how do you think that this should go? Or what, what's your feeling here? Um, that that's, that was surprising to me, at least having taken a college accounting class. Yeah, and and, and honestly, that's, um, that's why we teach in that way, because that's how you remember. Because a, a lot of times, you know, if you, if you see how your intuition is slightly different from what the regulator will allow, that, that's something that you can internalize much easier. Um, and so the discussion is is almost always set up in that way where we're trying to make a decision and we're just listing off the constraints. Um, so what what can what can we do reasonably from a regulatory standpoint and 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 what do we really want to do if we weren't constrained and how do we reconcile those two? Um, and just thinking through things that way. Do you have a favorite case you you go? Through uh, in the in the accounting for managers class, is there is there one that stands out? You mentioned the CEO change case, but is there sure. another one uh, that you yeah. want to share? Yeah, I mean, so so one of one of the nice cases we do early on when we're looking at um, uh, revenue recognition, which is you know it's one of the earliest topics we we basically cover it right away, sort of in the first few weeks. Um, you know, revenue recognition is one of the many rules where you think, oh, it's if A then B, I just have to to follow the rule. Um, but the way it's written is actually, you know, it's it's not black and white. Um, and so one of the things we we talk about is, um, you know, a transaction has to have commercial substance. And and what exactly does that mean? And that means different things to different people in, in the class. And, and one of the things that's really beautiful uh, in the classroom is is lots of the students have experiences. Oh, I worked in this industry and 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 we had this transaction and, and we recorded it. And, and they talk about sort of the commercial substance of of the transaction, and it's it's amazing the the variation that you get in the room. Um, and so, to me, that class is one of the things that's so great about it is um, it brings in people from all backgrounds. So, in you know, as an example, sort of, I had this this you know just a couple of weeks ago when we were teaching this class, um, someone who was in a sales and marketing background had proposed a sales incentive program. And, uh, you know, and, and they thought, and they tested with customers, customers loved it. They thought it was going to be a huge success. Um, but when it went through, um, uh, sort of evaluation internally, the accountants were pushing back 
Um, and, 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 and it was just, it was just one of those things that if you actually follow this incentive program, it would create all kinds of problems on the accounting side. Uh, and, and it was in many ways, you know, I don't want to divulge what this student was working on, but it was very similar to what Tesla had done several years ago, where when they initially started selling their cars, they put in what's called a, a buyback guarantee. Um, so after three years, we'll buy back your car at a predetermined price. And it turns out if you do that, you can't recognize revenue until the end of the three-year period. So even if you sell all the cars in the world today, when it feels like sales, they're not actually sales until you've got to the end of that three-year period. And there's a decision being made on the buyback or not. Um, and so understanding, you know, sort of how to tweak that, you know, so instead of it being a buyback, you have something that's similar, but not sort of over the regulatory line was really, you know, eye-opening for for that student and for for others uh, in the room. Well, thank you for sharing sharing that with us, Jim. Um, I want to talk about an elective that you teach: uh, sustainability measurement and disclosure. Uh, what was the inspiration uh, for this class? Sure. Yeah. I mean, honestly, accounting is moving away from revenue and earnings <laughs> in very simple terms. You know. Uh, if you go back 20 years, every company had sort of a big focus just on providing the accounting numbers. Um, and that's something that I experienced when I was working and thought was was a big shortcoming. Um, and I obviously wasn't alone. Uh, so today, most companies produce annual reports that have information about their sustainability practices, um, their employee practices, their engagement with the community. Uh, there's all kinds of things in there. And, and on top of that, most companies will also have separate sustainability reports that talk about their performance on environmental and social uh, dimensions and, and governance as well. Um, and so that's really been a, a, a something that's changed enormously in the last uh, 15 years. Um, and I still, you know, the first paper that I ever published, which was published in you know, a very good journal in accounting, was on... Um, you know what we at that time was called CSR reporting, but is now called ESG reporting. And I remember at the time, you know, my my colleagues, there was a very mixed view on that paper. Some felt, oh, you know, ESG, that's not even a real area of of accounting. And some felt, oh, well, that's the future of accounting. So you had sort of two very sort of strong opposite views. Um, and that was only that was less than ten years ago. Um, and I think in the last, you know, particularly in the last five years, um, the market has really sort of recognized how important that is. You know, employees that work at companies these days, they care. You know, they, they don't just look at earnings and say, hey, earnings were good. I'm, I'm really happy I'm working here. I mean, it's, it's nice, uh, but they really care about the environmental footprint of the company that they work for. They really care about how employees are treated. Um, you know, there's so many other things that matter and investors feel the same way. Um, and so, you know, in the, so a couple of years ago, um, when, uh, I proposed this, there was a little bit of pushback <laughs> and, uh, but I was able to convince, uh, the people here that no, no, this is, this is the future of, of how we were, we're going to be thinking about accounting. And, uh, you know, they, they supported it, uh, in the end, actually very strongly to, to, to be, to be fair. Um, so normally courses are only approved for sort of short periods and, and, and things like that. Mine was given sort of, you know, blanket approval for an extended period, we'll, we'll say, uh, in the, you know, after a little convincing. So, so I've been very lucky. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's every year my enrollment goes up. 
Um, we have a pretty full class this past year. And one of the things that, you know, we're starting to see is, you know, when you think about um, sort of traditional accounting, uh, it was really managed by accounts, right? So so when you had your revenue and your, your earnings, uh, that was always audited by CPAs. Uh, that's just sort of traditionally how it worked. With the ESG side, um, you know, there's still accountants are involved, uh, but a lot of it has really been managed by business school graduates uh, because they just have a better understanding of the strategy of a company um, and sort of, you know, you have to be thinking about environmental regulations. It's not just accounting rules. And so there's a lot of things that that sort of mix in there. Um, and one of the things that I found out sort of earlier this year from, from one of my students is, you know, that the hiring of individuals to sort of help with these ESG reports. So, you know, the audit, the management, the consulting, all the things that sort of the traditional big four accounting firms provide, um, they've been hiring, those firms have been hiring more people to handle ESG reporting uh, than traditional financial accounting uh, reporting. And so really that's that's where things are going. So if you look at any conference call when a company announces earnings, uh, these days about a third of the questions are on your social performance. Um, these other dimensions and, and these things matter, obviously, you know, in terms of how you think about the company that you're working for, but they also have implications on the financial side. I mean, if we just take carbon, which is, is probably the most commonly disclosed item, it's the one where we do have some rules, not so much in the U S but, but certainly outside the U S that are going to be, um, required for, for big companies pretty soon. Um, it really is something where, um, you know, companies recognize that reducing their, their carbon uh, output or carbon footprint is, is, a, is a big issue. And I think they recognize that at some point, if they don't act, if they don't show progress, they're going to be regulated. Um, and so a lot of these disclosures are being designed to sort of get ahead of that, that regulation. Um, and it's really something that's that's just fascinating to to watch at this time. I'm curious. Is there? Um, it's always nice to hear about a story or a case uh, from from that from a class. Is there a case that that you read in that class that you think would be sort of fairly reflective of of what you do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, so we do have. So I have one case. I mean, obviously, for my elective, I get to write the cases. Uh, I've written the, the cases I described for the. Okay, for me, I also wrote, so obviously there's a bias here. Um, you know, we always like our own stuff. Um, so again, I like my own stuff uh, for the elective as well. And uh, the one case I really, you know, the, where the class really gets engaged is on, um, you know, so the, 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 the term you hear is greenwashing. Um, and so it's with, um, so the company that's uh, where the decision is being made is, is Zara, which is a, a fas fast fashion retailer. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's an industry that has endemic problems, right? Just the, you know, simply because you're a fast fashion company, it's hard not to have a pretty significant environmental footprint. So just textiles in general have pretty, pretty heavy footprint. Um, and so what we do in that case though, is, is we, um, we're in the position of, uh, a senior executive at, um, at Sara, who's trying to deal with some accusations of greenwashing uh, and he's just trying to figure out how do I respond to this um so what are the things we should do to sort of manage the perception that we're we're not greenwashing or that these accusations are are somewhat unfair um and so what the case guides you through is, is sort of 
you know, there's there's actually many kinds of greenwashing. Um, so one of the, you know, it, most companies don't sort of overtly lie about environmental activities. I mean, there are cases where that happens, but that tends not to be the the norm. It's more that, you know, I do six different things, two of which are bad for the environment, and all I talk about are the four that aren't. Um, or I'll talk about the one that's the best, right? And so there's a little bit of what we call greenwashing by omission. Um, and then there's somewhere it's, you know, what we call greenwashing by influence, where, you know, you'll produce um, reports that have nice glossy pictures showing you doing really nice environmental things, but it's not clear that you even do those things. Um, and so so what we guide you to in the case is sort of how to think about greenwashing from, from the different stakeholders, at least in, in the U.S. So, so one of the things that's, I, I think, interesting that the students sort of unpack as we go through the case is the, um, is, is the way in which investors are protected in a way that's very different from customers. Um, so, you know, if I'm selling clothes, like Zara does in a store, and, and I put a tag on the clothes that says, um, um, made from 100% recycled material, and it turns out that's just the tag, not the clothes. Um, is that something consumers can can sue for? And it turns out it is. And 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 there's, you know, the entity in the U.S. is called the Federal Trade Commission, and it talks about sort of why they would be involved with something like that versus versus other things. Whereas um, when it comes to investors, it's it's much different. Um, and so if we're trying to to deal with an investor perception, uh, the things that we need to do are very different. Um, and so it's it's more of a materiality threshold where, you know, the average investor uh, could reasonably assume that it has a meaningful impact on reported financial results. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the current period; it can be in the future. Um, but it, it's a much more nebulous statement. And so working through sort of that and thinking about, well, these are the things we've been saying: is this a problem from a consumer standpoint, or is this a problem from an investor standpoint? Is this a problem from an employee standpoint? How do we think about these things? And then obviously in the cases are, there's also a regulatory standpoint where, you know, at least in, in Europe, there's a push to, to sort of add additional regulations given the waste in that industry. And so, you know, you're, you're thinking about all these different parties and, and how they think about what you're doing and, and trying to sort of, you know, communicate in a way that you sort of accept that, listen, we know there's waste in our system. We can't avoid it. But here are all the things we do to try to manage it, to, to minimize its impact, um, and, and really sort of developing that that approach. And, and you know, that's really what's interesting. And, and the students sort of have wonderful background uh, and really have a, a very good discussion about all those different topics. Um, and it really, and, and I'll for those of you you know listening, I didn't mention the word accounting entry or debit or credit at all. And that's again typical of how we think about accounting at Dart. You know, we're, you're in a position where you're trying to communicate with investors and you're thinking really about the big picture. So I, I wanted to stay with this topic of ESG disclosure uh, a little bit more because I know this is obviously something that's a big interest of yours. And is there like a collective understanding of what constitutes ESG and disclosing these things? It sounds like it's still very much evolving and maybe some leeway that companies may have since there's not this collective, oh, this is exactly what this means kind of decision. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's, honestly, that's what makes it so interesting. Um, so, 
when you look at the the evolution of accounting, it kind of goes through stages, right? So if we go back to the 1920s in the US, you know, the regulations for what you told us earnings and revenue were, were pretty limited. Um, and, and there was a lot of uh, instances of, of companies just not being entirely honest and led to problems and they sort of corrected it uh, over time with many, many, many rules. Um, when you look at the environmental side, there's, um, I think it would be fair to say that we all recognize its importance, um, but the thing that makes, there's, there's several things that make it interesting. One of them is it's very hard to look at companies across industries and, 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 and sort of understand what it is that they can control versus they can't control. Um, and so that's really where the disclosures are right now is it's really companies trying to explain, well, this is our, this is our footprint, at least from a carbon standpoint. Um, and these are the parts we think we can control. These are the parts we, we can't, these are the parts. And when I say can't, you know, if you look at, um, you know, a car manufacturer that produces, um, combustion engine cars, uh, at the end of the day, those cars, when used by customers are going to generate emissions that it's really, there's, there's no way around that. Um, and even if you produce, you know, uh, electric engine cars, how those get charged has emissions implications, right? So if I charge it at home and I'm on a grid that sources the electricity from a coal plant, that, those are emissions. Um, and sort of understanding all those things and what you can and can't control is really where the, the disclosures are right now. We're really trying to get our hands around um, sort of the, uh, the parts where companies can make decisions. Um, and that to me is really interesting because when you think about ultimately where we want to be, you know, there's this idea that, oh, if we provide money for projects, companies will do the right projects. But, you know, if you ask, I think people that have been looking at this for a little bit longer, what they'll say is what really matters is that we have the information. If we know exactly what companies are doing and we know what they have control over and what they don't have control over, then we can then, once we have all the information, then we can decide where we need to intervene and provide financial incentives in order to get them to do the things we want them to do. Um, and so a, a lot of what's happening on the accounting side is really sort of the first step in really getting to a place where companies are doing what we want them to, to ultimately do. Um, and, 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 you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, is that uniform in, in terms of what we're, where we're thinking things would be? It, it's at the moment, absolutely not. So it, it's, it's, somewhat uniform at least for carbon but for most other items it is is not so you know companies have other chemicals that they release into the environment there's the forever chemicals that are you know associated with nonstick and, and um, um, cookware and other things where you know, those are regulated by the uh, the EPA at the environment environmental protection agency in the US and there are requirements to figure out, um, um, how much of that is happening in your operations. Um, but there's no, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find financial statement disclosures that talk about, um, you know, the forever chemical discharges from sort of a measurement standpoint. So there are things that deal with the litigation related to it. That's a whole different kind of thing, but just how you're managing it from a, a non-litigation standpoint, just from an environmental standpoint, you, you don't, you tend not to see 
too many disclosures. And that's simply, that's not because it's not important. It obviously is. Uh, it, it's more the evolution of accounting. So five years from now, will you see it? Yeah, you will. Um, it's just a matter of, of, of companies coming to an agreement on, on how they should disclose things. The regulator sort of, um, viewing what they're doing as acceptable and not feeling the need to step in, uh, and then just seeing it sort of happen. And then once it becomes somewhat uniform, now we could get the auditors and the rating agencies involved and they can look at companies and say, yeah, I can evaluate what you're doing from on in this particular dimension because now it's uniform. And so all of that is, is sort of happening right now. And I think part of the reason why, um, you know, the, the students in my class are are so interested in it is they know once they get out there and they're working, this is going to be part of how they do their job. Um, so if you're working on a project and it's, you know, a wind farm or, or whatever it is, you know that part of it is going to be thinking about, well, what do we want to communicate about the performance? How do we think about um, measuring success? Because it's not just dollars and cents anymore. There's other things that go into it. Uh, and so just opening up that perspective is is really what's there um, in, in the class. But yeah, but to your original question, yeah, there's a lot of discretion. And obviously that means some companies are taking advantage, uh, some are not, uh, and there's a mix. And sort of, you know, what we talk a lot about, how do we, how do we distinguish uh, between them? I know one of the things you've spent some time researching is how retail investors think about ESG disclosures versus more traditional uh, financial disclosures. So what have you learned uh, through that research? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that that was a very interesting project. Um, so, when the SEC um, started to think about uh, regulating ESG, which is really, quite frankly, only a couple of years ago, um, one of the things that came up in their deliberations is, well, you know, as a regulator, we're not trying to protect these large hedge funds. Well, we're trying to protect our mom and pop investors. Um, and so anything that we do as a regulator, the idea is that we're making those mom and pop investors better off. Um, you know, the big guys, they can always figure things out, but we really need to think about mom and pop. And so um, I was very fortunate um, at that time. Uh, so uh, Robinhood uh, at that time was still providing their trading data for their individual investors. And so we were able to get trading data for a pretty large group of of individual retail investors. Uh, and we we're able to use that data to look at how they respond to different types of accounting communications and financial communications. And so, you know, there's things about, you know, CEO turnover, appointing a new board, see earnings related revenue, all these sorts of things. And then the ESG disclosures as well across different dimensions. Um, and, and, you know, what we found using, you know, primarily using the Robinhood data, but also using, some other data where you're able to sort of infer um, retail investors based on the trade type and, and things like that. Uh, we found that um, retail investors sort of just weren't responding uh, the day of or the two or three days surrounding uh, ESG disclosures. Um, and that was true even if it was material. Um, so even if there was a change in the stock price at the market level, so the the stock price that day changed because of a very material ESG disclosure. And one of the examples of that is, you know, when a company is named one of the best 100 companies to work for, um, you know, that that's a pretty strong signal that they're they're doing a lot of things right by their employees. Um, 
And typically when companies are added to that list for the first time, um, you see this positive response. Uh, and so we, so, but unfortunately, you know, we didn't find it for the retail investors. So we found it for the market. We found it for non-retail investors, but we didn't find it for, for, for re on the retail side. Um, and so one of the things I think that's interesting about that paper is there's multiple ways to sort of interpret our results. Um, so the way we interpreted it was that um, uh, the disclosures in part because they're voluntary in nature, uh, they're also voluntary in structure. Um, and so they don't always give you a clean way to understand the implications of what's being disclosed. Um, and, and so it's just very, very hard uh, for retail investors to sort of process these disclosures. Um, and so in very simple terms, if I gave you just random information, um, that's, uh, you would say, well, they don't respond, it's just random. But if I give you value relevant information, but I give it to you in a way that's impossible to process, it looks as if it's random, but it's not. Um, and so one of the things that was really nice in our study is we're able to distinguish between those two because we're able to show that the market is responding and retail investors are not, which tells you that it's really that, you know, this information is helpful, it's useful, it's it's financially material. It's just not something that retail investors can currently process. And that's really sort of is the, the key distinction in, in, in our study. Um, if you see it cited, um, you know, it's not always going to be cited for that. Some people will cite our paper and say, oh, you see, retail investors don't want these disclosures, which is absolutely not what our tests show. If you read past the first few pages, <laughs> you know, it's pretty clear what we're what we're trying to do, which is be a little more subtle and really kind of figure out why it is that they're not uh, responding. And so for us, it, it's really, um, you know, uh, the, the disclosure landscape right now is just too fragmented. Uh, and it's it's too unstructured, and that's really to the disadvantage of retail investors. And so, for us, the the takeaway is, you know, we need to get some 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 type of mandatory disclosure in there, at least in format, even if it's just for some items. Like obviously, carbon is is one where that's possible to do. Uh, and I think that if we do that, then we'll we'll start to see what we what we want to see, which is, you know, we're giving retail investors information they can actually act on. Um, and then hopefully they will. Um, and so that paper was, you know, we always say there's multiple audiences for, for papers. This one was obviously just published this year. Um, it was very popular with regulators. Um, so, cause it was really the first time that there was clear empirical evidence that, um, you know, the current regime is not meeting the needs of retail investors. Um, and so that was really something that was very, very helpful for them. Well, somewhat related to that, the question that we've gotten in the Q&A, um, obviously this is voluntary disclosure at this point with ESG. How do companies think about, like, is this worth it, the cost of not disclosing this? Um, obviously, there seems to be some this bifurcation in terms of how some of these investors may think about this information, but I mean, obviously it's something that companies must be weighing out too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and you know, not surprisingly, it depends where you're located and, and who you're responding to. I mean, th so there are some companies, you know, the practice, you know, the, the, the colloquial term is called green hushing, where you do things that are, are good, but you don't talk about it. Um, and then there's greenwashing, which is quite literally the opposite, where you say you do good things, but you don't. <laughs> and so, 
and and you see this this spectrum across companies in terms of their actions and you see the same thing on the disclosure uh the landscape as well um so how do you figure it out that's facts and circumstances uh so we have uh you know in, in my class we have a couple of cases where you're trying to figure out is this a useful disclosure or is this just hyperbole is this just sort of almost like marketing uh where it's just giving some some sound bites but it's not really backed by by real action um and we do um we have ways uh at the sort of <laughs> as researchers where we can distinguish some of those things um you know so there's there's early work on this i have some we'll call it it's certainly unpublished uh but just some empirical work where we've looked at different ways of of categorizing disclosures uh and a lot of it has to do with you know natural language processing the use of numbers the use of tables there's a lot of sort of subtle things that we can measure uh um across disclosures um and so you know the we don't obviously have a, a published study or peer-reviewed study on this yet but you know one of the things that at least we see in the data is it it does matter um uh the things that you would expect to see you know some more direct language more use of numbers um you know it it ends up in a disclosure that's much more meaningful than than if it's not and, and one of the other things that we, we we've looked at is sort of when you bundle disclosures so you know when when really good financial news is is accompanied with really good environmental news like is that different than if it's bad financial news but similarly good environmental news and just looking at how investors process the information um, so that that's still as a as a very much an ongoing area of research um where i think you know hopefully the next five or ten years we'll have some good insights <laughs> as, as to which direction but uh there's a lot of very smart people working on that right now uh so we'll we'll, we'll, we'll get there but in the class we we talk about these things and we look at specific examples um uh, and uh it's it's you know it's very tricky at the moment. Another thing that you've been researching is uh, how companies get involved with political contributions and what this may mean for their regulatory outcomes. Uh, yeah. That feels like a very hot topic uh, type of type of issue. So uh, what got you interested in this and, and what have you learned through it? Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that that's a, uh, yeah. So, sometimes you don't want to be too sensational, but at the same time, Sometimes you can't help yourself. You want to look at the most interesting things. Uh, so, you know, one of the th one of the things I got to experience a, a few years ago was, um, um, you know, testifying as an expert in front of Congress on uh, some proposed legislation to deal with uh, a pension issue, um, and just thinking about sort of you know the, the different stakeholders that are involved and, and and how they think about things, and and just coming out of that experience, one of the things that I had not fully appreciated uh, was sort of how connected um, our elected officials are with our regulatory bodies, and you know, they for many many things they they actually have to work together to figure out what to do, right? So, if you're going to pass new laws on, uh, for example, insider trading by elected officials, you need to talk to the people at the SEC at the accounting standards centers to understand what they're seeing in their data, how they work together. So there's lots of good reasons why they why they need to communicate and why they need to be in touch. Um, and so so one of the things that you know my uh, my colleagues and I started thinking about was, well, 
what if there's also some things that aren't as good? <laughs> and so uh, we ended up sort of walking down this path of thinking about, well, you know, connections are important. Connections are good. And they do, and they do in fact, do a lot of good. But, but what if they also give an unfair advantage to some companies over another, right? So if I happen to be a company that's actively involved politically, um, uh, and I have sort of an ongoing relationship with people at the, the regulatory agency, does that mean that, you know, if I have an accounting issue, do I get differential treatment? Um, and it's not, and so the idea of that is not that, oh, they, they, they give you favoritism or they, they cut you a break. That's certainly not the idea. The idea is more that you have better information, right? So as a company, you have access to, to regulators, which gives you better information uh, to understand what it is that they care about. Um, they give you better information about sort of how to address potential issues in your internal controls or in how you're doing your accounting. And so what we do in that study is we basically think about ways that the companies can be connected to the regulator. And we look specifically at meetings between the company and the SEC. Um, and we look at sort of how that affects the regulatory process. And, you know, consistent with what I've been suggesting, it's it turns out that if you're connected, you're able to to get better outcomes. And again, it's not, you know, nefarious in any way. It's just sort of endemic in the system where, you know, it, you know, the way I, when I talk to my, um, uh, like my friends and family about it, it's, you know, college admissions. If your best friend is the head of college admissions at a school and he's able to tell you how admissions work, it just gives you better information about how to handle the process. And there's nothing wrong with him telling you how it works. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And in, in fact, it's, it's perhaps a good thing. But it just, when it's uneven, where he only talks to you and doesn't talk to other people, it just creates a little bit of un unevenness in the process. And that's really what we were trying to, uh, to document in that study is, is, is that that happens. And, you know, just from a big picture standpoint, um, you know, unevenness happens in, in many, many aspects of our lives. And it's, it's, you know, it's something that is just quite honestly a fact of life. But at the same time, it's not ideal when it affects regulation, uh, you know, because the idea there is everybody really should be, should be subject to the same rules and the same outcomes. Um, and so it's just sort of highlighting that, you know, maybe we need to manage these things a little bit more carefully, uh, just so everybody gets the same information. Well, you mentioned your testimony on Capitol Hill related to pensions. I do want to give a few minutes here to talk about your interest in pensions. Uh, what got you interested in this particular topic? So uh, honestly, pensions is is one of those areas where the accounting <laughs> choices are many, <laughs> and so uh, and so what you see is is something that uh, there's just a lot of variation in what um, you know not only companies but but states do, um, and you know one of the the recent uh, papers that I I've worked on that was it was also published uh, this past year was was looking at state um pension rules um so you know i have a, a long-standing interest in, in in pensions it's to me it's one of the key ways in which employees sort of become attached to a employer um so it's not just hey we give you a wage call it a day it's you know we're, we're going to give you these post-retirement we're going to give you a pension we're going to give you medical it's it's more of a it's much more of a relationship than just uh show up to work today and we'll pay you um 
So I've always been interested in, in how companies use pensions to, to sort of build an employee relationship. Um, and, and one of the things that's, um, I think interesting in the pension front is companies are very, uh, uh, there's a lot of variation in, in what companies know, our states know about what they're doing with their pension plans, how well they're funded. Um, and, 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 and sort of one of the things that, you know, I've studied and then I'll talk a little bit about something else that I'm currently getting data on was just thinking about, well, why is it that they're managed in the way they're managed? And so one of the things that we were able to do was look at, um, at the county level in the U.S., uh, there, there was this change where uh, all of a sudden they have to account for their pension plans. They didn't, some, some did before, some, some didn't. Uh, so, excuse me, some, some did and some didn't. And then all of a sudden everybody had to. Um, and so it was sort of bringing everyone to a, to a common basis. Um, and it was really just documenting, does that change the employee contract? So do, do, do these counties that all of a sudden have to start providing information, change how they manage the plan? And it turns out that they, they do. Um, and, and what we find in that study, a lot of it has to do with the understanding of, of how the costs kind of flow over time. Uh, so, so if all I had to report was what I put into the plan this year, I manage it very differently than if I know what the total obligations will be in the future. Um, and so there's just some very interesting things there about sort of how that was, how that was being managed and sort of closely related to that. One of the things that we're, we're still working on getting data from and just thinking about is, you know, many States in the U S when you start today, will give you a choice between a savings plan and a, a pension plan. So either you get some percent of pay put in a savings account and you sort of manage it yourself or we'll give you a pension. Um, so Virginia is one of them. So I went through this choice when I when I started, I'm sure you did too, um, but the other states have as well. And so the state that we're, we're trying to get data on is actually Texas, where they provide a similar um, offer. And, and the idea there is we're just trying to figure out how employees make this choice. Um, so, so there's a lot of concern in the in the U.S. about sort of these unfunded pension plans um, and how how much money it is, and a lot of the variation in how critical you think the problem is is how much you think those pension obligations are worth, right? So the states will tell you, oh, it's like one and a half trillion. Some economists will tell you it's six trillion because uh, they just sort of value them in a, in, in a in a different way. And so what we're trying to get at is, well, how do the employees value them? Uh, so do the employees value them at one and a half? Do the employees value them at two? Do they employ them at seven? Like, what's the number? Uh, and, and our suspicion is that the employee number is a lot lower uh, than so, so what some economists are doing. Um, so we're trying to work our way uh, from that perspective to sort of think about, you know, what is the scale of the problem here? Um, and, and just think about it from that perspective. That's super interesting. I feel like uh, pension conversation also bubbled up around you know 2007, 2008 here in the United States as uh, risky investments lost a lot of value. Who backstops those pensions? Um, you also saw some of the bankruptcies with large companies, people who had pensions uh, slashed uh, because of those bankruptcies. I mean, there's there's a lot uh, that's there. Yeah, that's right. And and, and the, the the legislation that I was um, testifying at in the Capitol was was a situation where it, it ultimately there was a bailout of about 120 billion that the government provided to to a certain group of pension plans for, you know, what you know, depending on your perspective, was bad luck or mismanagement. And so, 
there, there was, you know, there, 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 there's tremendous economic concerns about that system. Um, and so, you know, as an accountant, I'm thinking, well, what are the numbers? Uh, if we have good numbers, we can make better decisions. Uh, and so that's, that's where, that's where I am. And that's where I'm thinking. All right, Jim, last question for you here. Um, so a piece of advice for our prospective students on the call today, something for them to think about as they go forth on their own MBA journeys. Sure. Yeah. So, so the, um, you know, an MBA is really an opportunity to put yourself on a different trajectory. Uh, and what you want to be thinking about um, with an MBA degree is not, well, what's this going to do to my earnings three years from now? Or what's this going to do to, you know, my immediate job prospects? Because that's not really what you want to be thinking about. You really want to be thinking long term. Um, and so what I'd encourage you you all to do is think, okay, where do I want to be 10 years from now? What is the type of job that I want to have 10 years from now? And then think about the type of MBA degree that will get you to perform best in that job. And that's really, it's not easy, uh, you know, but but that's really the thought process you want to go to. There's um, very often when I talk to students, um, you know, there's this bias to think about the short term because it's easy. Uh, but that's really what you want to avoid here. You know, as much as possible, you want to think about where do I want to be in 10 years? Um, and then really build what you do academically around that. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time and for answering all of my questions. And I hope you have a happy holiday uh, season. And, and to all of our attendees, happy holidays and, and have a great rest of the week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, everyone. And that was my interview with Jim Naughton, an associate professor in the accounting area at the Darwin School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.